I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Please join me in a very warm welcome, Leslie Jameson and Olivia Lang. Thank you. I am absolutely delighted to introduce Leslie Jameson. I was lucky enough to read her book long before it came out in England, and I was really blown away by it. I think it's um, both an extraordinary voice and a degree of courage of approach that is really unusual um mary carr said leslie jameson has written a profound exploration into how empathy deepens us yet how we unwittingly sabotage our own capacities for it this riveting book will make you a better writer and a better human the empathy exams deals with dangerous subjects and by that i partly mean subjects like war subjects like violence but also subjects that are stickier, trickier, more shameful. Subjects like there's a defense of saccharin, there's a grand unified theory of female pain, there are frequent personal confessions. Make no mistake, this is perilous ground, as you'll no doubt see in the reading Leslie's about to give now. So as, as some of you might know, the, the essays in the book are about pretty wide range of subjects from like a long distance run in the middle of Tennessee to a strange disease, which Claire referenced briefly, um, a, a sort of controversial skin illness. Um, Frida Kahlo shows up. Mexican poetry about the narco wars shows up. A lot of different things show up. But these questions are kind of running throughout that have to do with how we try to understand other people's pain, how we try to make our own pain known to others. The piece I'm going to read tonight is part of, there are these two series of shorter essays in the book called Pain Tours that deal with ways in which we're kind of drawn to witnessing pain and various dynamics of voyeurism. So a tour that I went on in my own hometown of Los Angeles, where you're essentially taken on a bus ride through gang territories. I write about that. I write about uh, walking into the bowels of Bolivian silver mines. Um, But this piece I'm going to read which is called The Broken Heart of James Agee, is about essentially reading as a kind of voyeurism, what it might mean to think about reading as as a kind of voyeurism. Many nights that autumn, I went to a bar where the floor was covered with peanut shells, and I drank, and I read James Agee. Liquor carried his vision of trauma all through me, twisted me, pliable to the loss, and I wasn't afraid to think like this, pliable to the loss, because I was drunk, and drunk meant sentiment was not only permissible, but imperative. It was boundless. Turns out, let us now praise famous men wasn't about famous men. It was about bedbugs and mildewed bridal caps and farmhouses like cracked nipples on the land. It was about how A.G. wanted to fuck one of the women he was writing about. Also, it was about guilt. Mainly, it was about guilt. Originally, it was a magazine article gone rogue. In 1936, Fortune magazine told A.G. to write a journalistic piece about sharecroppers in the Deep South, and he gave them a spiritual dark night of the soul instead. They rejected it. He wrote another 400 pages. It's a hard book to classify. It's got sections that don't seem to belong together, discussions of cotton prices and denim overalls and the soul as an angel nailed to a cross. It uses colons somewhat like this sentence does, rabidly. <laughs> it's, it's even funnier on the page. It's so, <laughs> it's so long-winded and beautiful, you want to shake it by the bones of its gorgeous shoulders and make it stop. But the difficulty of closure is one of its obsessions, the endlessness of labor and hunger. It's trying to tell a story that won't end. I was trying, at the time I read it, to tell a story of my own. I had recently returned to America after living in Nicaragua, where I had been robbed and punched in the face one night, drunk. 
My nose had been broken, then partly fixed by an expensive surgeon in Los Angeles. I'd moved to New Haven, where it seemed like someone was always getting mugged. I was afraid to walk alone in the dark. Nearly all is cruelly stained, A.G. wrote, in the tensions of physical need. There's a notion we absorb about suffering, that it should expand us, render us porous, but this didn't happen to me. I felt shrunk. Damage became fear. It became an insistence. I read A.G. thinking about his own guilt when he was supposed to be thinking about three Alabama families, and I thought about myself when I was supposed to be thinking about A.G. Or else I thought of everyone who wasn't me, Back on the streets of Granada, I thought of the boys I'd tutored some afternoons, glue-addicted and homeless, with their runny noses and loose pants, catching them as they prowled the cantinas of Calle Calzada looking for money and company. I thought of Luis, who'd fallen on the steps of the home where I lived, and how I hadn't invited him inside at night, only woken him up, nudged his shoulder because he was blocking the door. I inspected this memory for the shown seams of a moral. What should I have done? Maybe A.G. kept writing because he was looking for the stitching of a moral, too. Maybe that's why he couldn't stop. I loved getting sad about A.G. because his sadness wasn't mine. My face was claustrophobic and A.G. was something else. He was something I wasn't. Tragedy is secondhand. Faulkner wrote that, which meant... To me, families in Alabama hurt more than I ever would, and I could show up at a dingy bar and admit that. That wasn't enough, but it was something. A.G. felt this about his own book. It wasn't enough, but it was something. He writes of a woman's daily work in the cotton fields. How is it possible to be made clear enough the many processes of wearying effort which make the shape of each one of her living days? How is it to be calculated the number of times she has done these things, the number of times she is still to do them? How conceivably in words is it to be given as it is in actuality the accumulated weight of these actions upon her and what this accumulation has made of her body and what it has made of her mind and of her heart and of her being? Empathy is contagion. A.G. catches it and passes it to us. He wants his words to stay in us as deepest and most iron anguish and guilt. They have stayed. They do stay. They catch as splinters still in the open, supplicating palms of this essay. If it were possible, A.G. claims, he wouldn't have used words at all. If I could do it, he writes, I do no writing at all here. In this way, we are prepared for the 400 pages of writing that follow. A piece of the body torn out by the roots, he continues, might be more to the point. A.G. doesn't offer actuality. He only wonders what this actuality might look like, an adequate description, what this accumulation has made, and suspends that possibility in the margins of his book, everything he can't manage. On the question of poverty and its effect on consciousness, he is merciless. The brain is quietly drawn and quartered. His book does the same to its story, slicing it to pieces and putting it back together in fragments, the house, the dawn, the animals, the men, communism, children. He calls his work the effort to perceive simply the cruel radiance of what is. What is, it seems, was broken. So A.G. broke his book to fit. Subject holds structure in its thrall. Poverty pulls apart consciousness, dissolved into bodily necessity and stricture, and A.G. pulls apart narrative, drawn and quartered. He doesn't think he'll do his subjects justice. I feel sure in advance that any efforts in what follows along the lines I have been speaking of will be failures. He chokes on his words, interrupted by the commas and clauses of his own apologies. He stutters here. He stutters often. <laughs> I found it hard to talk about getting hurt. I kept trying to make it something larger than itself, that single moment in the street to make it part of a pattern. The easiest pattern was guilt. My hand had been on a sleeping boy's shoulder, shaking him awake. What does concrete make you dream? 
I dream of that boy in circles. I dream of where my hand was. I could think forever about the man who hit me, how little he had most likely, and how big a difference it might have made to him to sell my little digital camera wherever he sold my little digital camera. That camera I would have given him easily just to keep his hand from striking my face. A.G. went somewhere to look at poverty and tried to take the damage onto himself to strip away its metaphors and get to some clean, torn truth beneath. The literal feeling by which the words a broken heart are no longer poetic but are merely the most accurate possible description. What was broken in me that fall wasn't poetry. My face wasn't useful as metaphor or aperture. It was only the accurate description of where a hand had been. It doesn't seem right to say A.G. risked sentimentality. Better to say he could smell it from a mile off and clawed his way into it anyway. He thrust it before him like an obscenity, forcing everyone to see how his outrage had driven him to the embarrassment of such hyperbole. I felt infected by it. What good is guilt? A.G. asked. We ask. We like the sound of the question. It puts a crude finger on a heartbeat in us that won't stop racing, a pulse broken in sympathy. It makes us talk. It makes us talk about ourselves. It makes us confess. We want to purge something that even confession won't justify, that sleeping boy. A.G. drank when he wrote, and I drank when I read him. A.G. threw himself at the feet of his subjects, and I couldn't even bring myself to walk alone at night with my bone-broken nose and my vodka-flung and fluttering heart. You get drunk, and then you get sentimental, or else you get drunk and get hit. I told myself there was something dense and meaningful in my fear, an earned experience, the residue of contact, a cruel radiance, but truly there was nothing but my arms crossed over my chest as I walked on empty streets and no one coming after me in the dark. I think that's such an incredible essay. I actually read it on the train coming down and hearing it is such a different different thing because it makes you aware of how intricately and rhythmically it's structured it's absolutely beautiful i think the large subject in this book is clearly pain our own pain and the pain of others how close we can come to it how far we can stay away from it it seems to be a question of voyeurism and distance and i wanted to ask how you do that balancing act what what you think about while you're doing that balancing act it's dangerous yeah it does i mean it does feel dangerous and and i i feel torn between the impulse to confess that danger and peril as a way out of the danger and peril to sort of be self-aware say when I'm writing about going through Bolivian silver mines and witnessing men who are inside of conditions of what seems like unconscionable unendurable labor to sort of say to flag that feeling of what does it mean for me to be a tourist here a spectator to these conditions of labor this feels problematic it feels uncomfortable some of that admission feels like a productive response to that peril, but I, I'm also wary of the admission of the peril somehow being meant to just dissolve it. Okay, yeah, I, yeah. I, I understand what's problematic about my being here, so it's no longer problematic to be here. That that's a fallacy too. So mm. And that can't possibly dissolve it. Right. And yeah. so and and I think you can get into a, a kind of endless there's a kind of authorial reflexivity that becomes an endless loop where you're sort of constantly just flagging everything the writing's not mm. doing and um or saying you know I it's problematic and I haven't dissolved that and it's it's kind of like each admission just keeps spiraling mm. um but I guess it I, there's some there's firm ground for me in the fact that I do actually believe in acts of witnessing and documentation making known things in the world um making known the the discomfort of being in a position of privilege when others aren't in that position, I, I, I actually just believe in that project of ex- exploring what's wrong there and trying to speak what's wrong there. Um, and I think that, I guess the other way that I approach it and part of why it, it felt necessary to me that this be a book of journalism and memoir insofar as it also includes a lot of my experience is that it felt necessary when I was exposing 
other people's pain to talk about what was rising up for me in those encounters, mm. that seemed to make it something other than voyeurism, or, or my hope is that it makes it something other than voyeurism, um, because there's a, a kind of exposure that's not meant to draw the reader always back to, to me or myself or my own pain, but it's to sort of say, look, it's not a vertical, it's not entirely just a vertical thing of sort of me standing on some... Uh, from some height and looking mm, at other in people. Violet. Yeah, 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 yeah. It lets you be open too. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think that's part of why I, f- I front load with a bit of that as well to sort of um, expose myself before I go about the business of exposing others. Yeah. Do you mean specifically in individual essays or the way the book's structured? As the a whole? way the book is structured yeah. as a whole. That's that the first essay is that. one of the most confessional ones. Yeah. Yeah, so you sort of laid yourself bare and then you can go on to the kind of mm-hmm. travelling that you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's interesting. Let's talk about women. There's there's an amazing line in the closing essay of the book is called um, Grand Unified Theory of Female Pain, is it? Mm-hmm. It says, um, I really like this, I feel like this is really timely. I am tired of female pain and also tired of people who are tired of it. It feels like that's precisely where we are at the moment. That's where we are with feminism. That's mm-hmm. where we are generally as a culture. Why? Why is it so difficult to write about female pain? Why did you feel so sort of called to do what I, I again, feel like was very problematic work? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it was, more than anything, wanting to articulate a channel of feeling that I felt was diffusely present amongst so many of the women that I knew without ever being explicitly articulated, which was that I felt like I could hear it in myself and I could hear so many women I knew doing this thing where we would talk about something hard, like physically or emotionally or otherwise, but then would really get self-conscious and come out of that moment and and say, well, like, I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to play victim here or I don't want to, um, you know, I don't want to parade this, like, I don't, I don't want to be trying to get street cred out of this pain, or I don't want to play that role of a, a certain kind of woman who's always hurting. And mm-hmm. I just felt like there was this sense that it was an outmoded identity model to be um, a suffering woman. And I think part of that was the, the legacy of trying to claim a certain kind of empowerment. And, but I, but what I wanted to do was make space for talking about female pain in a way that where we wouldn't need to constantly be offering those disclaimers and that I didn't like what kind of female voice that I could find in a lot of you know a lot of fiction that I read where there was a first person female narrator I feel like she would be constantly talking about things that were hard but in this very numb tone and I didn't like that numbness as a as can you can you just say the Shilahetti story, the thing from um, her book that you quoted? Because I thought that that was another example of somebody doing the same. Oh, you, can you, can you tell that story? Yeah. yeah. So the incident from, maybe many of you have read How Should a Person Be? But um, the incident that I talk about is these sort of, it's a, it's a dream sequence where these women are at a, um, a party and the, the dialogue between the women is sort of, there's a kind of joking about pain that's happening there. And I can't remember the precise quote, but it's like a, it's a, it's a feeling of there's like intense violence happening in that room, but also a feeling of um, dismissing that violence. But then it ends with this incredibly harrowing, (laughs) we're going to take all of you there. This incredibly (laughs) harrowing vision of like skin peeled off of bodies and then bodies falling from the top floor where this is where this party is happening. And, paint being flung at the body so there's a sense that they're made into it's made into art you know that that suffering and the kind of raw selves that are revealed by that suffering are turned into art pieces as well and I mean there's a lot in that anecdote but I felt like part of what I was getting out of it was I mean I I actually I love that sequence in the book um, Mm. because I feel like it's not it doesn't seem to me to be inhabiting the, the kind of numb voice that I'm talking about. It seems to be like turning that it. inside out, you know. The reason showing. I'm drawing it out yeah. is because that I was so struck by that moment in the Sheila Hetty and then to sort of re-encounter it there. Yeah. It again felt yeah. like that there's something sort of urgent being, being communicated that feels quite new. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I mean, to me it's like, I guess the, the central call is, 
how do you use pain to make a kind of art that's doing more than just reiterating that pain or dwelling in that pain or, you know, that's, that's like actively moving through the pain towards some space beyond it. And the, what I see in that dream vision is, a, is an incredibly unsettling, sort of like viscerally disturbing vision of how we might like fling paint at raw skin. But it's like calling, it's calling for more than just being a kind of self-pitying woman and being more than just somebody who would mock the self-pitying woman, but to actually ter- create something from that. that and I might just path. throw into yeah. this the phrase post-woundedness, which I think you invented. Did you invent I don't know. I, I mean, I, I thought I did, but <laughs> it's just, I'm sure I'm going to encounter some indignant person at some point who is like, I didn't say post-wounded woman in 2003 or something like that, and maybe, they'll, maybe they're here tonight. Um, but the... the yeah, I mean, when, by post-wounded, what, I, what I'm talking about is a kind of ironic relationship to pain. It's mm. basically like... Um, a knowing Yeah, like a kind well. of wry wink at, oh, we all know, you know, we all know how much people like to play the victim. Like, I'm, I'm removed from that, or I'm a sort of step above that. And I think that leads into something else that I'm interested about in your work, which is the position that generally, at a large level, it's taking about irony this sort of idea that we're moving past irony and that irony isn't sufficient for the sorrows of the world, let us say. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's... it's. Um, I think that I... one And I, I've never tried to articulate this thought out loud before, so we'll mm. see how it goes. But I'm aware that I use irony a lot more as a person in the world than I do as a writer, and that often as a writer, I'm, I am articulating a, a kind of... Not a position against irony, but articulating a position against irony as a kind of cop-out or an escape mechanism are certainly trying to make a case for earnestness. And I think that shows up in the piece that I read, like making a case for what feels to me very earnest about James Agee and kind of getting defensive on behalf of a certain sort of earnestness because I feel like it can be so easy to take it down. And Mm. it's almost like I feel like I want to bring everything in me. I want to bring every thought I've ever had to the defense of a kind of unironic treatment of certain subjects. Um, But that said, then I then I think about well, how do I actually move through the world on a daily basis? And I I I mean, I constantly deploy. I mean, I'm constantly responding to things in an ironic way or a sarcastic way or something like that. So it's not that, and I and I I think that there are moments like that in my writing too. But it's it's more like sometimes I think of it less as like an attack on irony and more trying to defend the spaces that irony can sometimes like close us off from and so it's like when irony is evasive in certain ways then it it troubles me and I want to push back against it Mm. Mm. and particularly when it's a way of avoiding or evading pain and particularly when that pain is the pain of others and particularly when they are vulnerable I think that's where it becomes really important yeah Yeah. which brings me on to this when I was saying that there are regions of this book that are dangerous I think there are regions that are I wrote down a list of words that you used to describe it yourself, lame, banal, trite, shameful, kind of icky, these these sort of things that we don't particularly want to talk about or that we don't think are deserving of intellectual scrutiny. And one of those which I found really fascinating was an essay about sentimentality and saccharin, the saccharin, both the drug saccharin and the concept of saccharin. Maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, well, that was definitely, I mean... Shame, shame is like a is a hot. It really starts with shame as well. It's a confession, a genuine confession. And it's funny because there, there, of all the things that I talk about that are quite personal in this collection, I I don't want to say the one that was the hardest, but the one I most felt myself wanting to disclaim was (laughs) when I talk about how much I used to consume artificial sweeteners because that essay about. it was a lot. It was a lot. It was a lot, and I've actually had to clarify to certain people that like. People who encounter me first through that essay, I, I find myself wanting to finding ways to insert in conversation. Like I've really downed my usage in the past <laughs> ten years, and like you know, but it's it, because it, it is. I wrote it. I wrote that piece in two thousand six, which is the the earliest essay in the collection. And I really, I tried. I thought I would just be able to sneak it in with my editor in the states. I 
tried to, none of the essays were dated, but I just, beneath the title of that one, I just put in a little 2006 because I was, I really wanted to distance myself from the, from the self in that essay. That's funny. Yeah, no, but he, but he made me take it out because he, he, oh, could see, yeah, no, he could see right through me. He said, well, what is this 2006 doing here? And I said, well, I just thought it was important for people to know that that essay was written in 2006. And he was like, well, you either need to own this essay or not. You know, and I, I felt, I felt known by him in a way that was a bit of impressive at that point but but I, he also had a point like I either had to stand behind what I was saying or not and and I think that I was you know I, I could see that I was both drawn to this very intense sweetness like why was I consuming so many to begin with but also that I really had a there was something in me that was clenching up when I thought about mm. making that known and and it was really thinking about it was like following that shame to whatever subterranean place it was it was pointing at um and, and that did seem to me to connect. I mean, the, the basic connection that I saw between sentimentality and between one saccharine and another, basically between sentimentality and artificial sweeteners was this sense of getting something without, getting something that was hollow or getting something you weren't paying for. So um, Oscar Wilde calls a sentimentalist somebody who um, wants the luxury of feeling without paying for it. This idea that that a piece of art is make is drawing, is plucking your heartstrings or drawing on all these intense emotions without building to them through consciousness and character and nuance and subtlety, but it's just sort of giving you the cheap thrill of crying when, when a puppy dies or something like that. Mm. And that artificial sweeteners are sort of giving you this very intense flavor, but it's absolutely empty. There are no calories in it. and um, No cost. No cost, right. You don't have to wear the, you know, baggage of it on your body afterwards. Um, and it was interesting, I got, I, there was an early takedown of that piece, which was sort of gratifying because it got, so it was published in a tiny lit mag in this literary magazine in the States and like nobody read it, but Jezebel, which. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is like highly circulated, like women, you know, site for women really like lashed out there was one writer there who found it somehow and just lashed out against it and it was interesting because it was very personal and kind of snarky but also very smart and um it, but but part of the critique was that the you know that in her mind the parallel didn't quite hold and also that it was kind of ignoring certain things like artificial sweeteners being really bad for you and <laughs> that was interesting to me because it did it showed up what what stuck with me about that critique was the idea that I was sort of doing something as an intellectual exercise and not thinking that much about all the levels of how it might play out or that I was sort of building a little bit of a monopoly money world hmm. where I could say, oh, this equals this, isn't that cool, but that I wasn't I was I wasn't acknowledging all the ramifications of that. And and I think so that essay more than any of the others I revised quite a bit before it came into the became part of the collection because I wanted I wanted very much to write a piece that wasn't just a a whimsical think job, but that was actually... It didn't feel like that, yeah. actually. It felt more solid. And I think, and maybe we can go into that, but you you end with really a defense of why the sentimental might have value. Mm -hmm. And maybe you could tell. <laughs> I mean, for me... The, because the, that seems strong to me. Right. The potential value of sentimentality for me is very much thinking about sentimental a sentimental experience as part of a an ongoing process where you kind of might have a sentimental reaction where you're sort of overwhelmed by feeling in response to a situation or a moment or a text but that that feeling is followed by some kind of awareness and it's really in that rupture between sort of um crying for the dead puppy and thinking about, well, what does it mean that I'm crying for the dead puppy? That that's where I think some kind of value would lie. So it's, it, it's sort of thinking about the chronology of how we experience not just art, but our own lives too. And how these moments of kind of deep, sweet, uncomplicated feeling give way to their own undermining and that process of giving way, mm. whatever is valuable in that process of giving way is totally contingent on there having been a pure, sweet, uncomplicated, uncomplicated moment. Um, there seems to be a real faith in all of this in 
the process of feelings, the way that feelings lead to other feelings and that they might take you somewhere good. And I think that's also quite unusual, that we tend to be, especially if we're trying to write intellectually about subjects, very guarded about actually letting ourselves feel and believing that a feeling might take you somewhere else than just the hit of the feeling itself. Mm-hmm. There was, there's a line that I want to quote by Brian Dillon, who's sitting right in front of me. Um, <laughs> You're at your disconcerting best when dealing with bodily predicaments. That that really struck me that there seems to be so much of the physical body, again, a sort of taboo subject in lots of ways. What what draws you to that? What are you sort of thinking around that, especially the body in distress, the body at states of extremes? And I'm thinking of the ultramarathon essay as well as the itching under the skin. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I think I maybe thought about this in nebulous ways, but never so clearly as this moment, that that's part of why the essay about this intense 100-mile ultramarathon, mm. I think that's part of why I felt like I wanted it to be part of this collection, is that it is very much a counterpoint yeah. to vulnerable bodies. I mean, obviously bodies are... And it are, leads into the prison story as well, yes, which yeah, yeah, yeah. makes that body even more vulnerable. Yes, yeah, there's a, a man who ran in an ultramarathon and then was in, incarcerated, and so he shows up in several essays. Um, but I think it's like these bodies make themselves vulnerable by running for such a long way, but it's a different kind of extreme. It's like a body pushing itself to the limits of capacity rather than being pushed on by all of these various forces of violence or illness or things that are pushing on other bodies in the text. Um, I mean, I think that part of it, and there's a, a passage in the final essay where I'm talking about, it's almost like a little glossary, but I'm talking about different kinds of language we have for pain, the difference between words like pain and suffering and angst and wound and damage. And, and hmm. I think about a wound as a uh, a moment where inside and outside meet or where the inside of a body is exposed in a way that it shouldn't quite be. And I do think that's why bodies mm-hmm. in extremity are compelling to me is that it seems like there are kinds of exposure that come in extremity and vulnerability <laughs> that we don't always get. And that's part of why I'm, I'm drawn to bodies that are in those states of need and like discomposure I guess but then part of it is also that some of the stuff that has happened to me that I've wanted to write about has had to do with my body being in various states of discomposure and so in writing about some of those experiences very much didn't come from like an overarching conceptual plan of here are all the ways that I will explore empathy and here's Mm. how all the jigsaw pieces are going to fit together it was more like here are the things that feel urgent in my own life and my own path to write about and 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 then it was sort of looking at the pattern of things that I had written about and thinking about well, what what are these moments or situations of vulnerability allowing me access to? And it seemed like part of what they were allowing me access to is these questions of what was I asking? What kind of sympathy was I asking for from other people? Or how did I want other people to regard me in these states of pain? And so it was sort of following um, a sense of what might be worth writing about, almost like following shame, you know, mm, towards like mm, what are mm, the mm. questions or the urgencies that are there? Yeah. One of them, probably my favourite essay in the collection, is about um, the West Memphis Three. I don't know how many people here are familiar with them, and I'm sure Leslie will tell the story better, but we're not alone in that obsession with with that case. There's, I think we're now in the fifth film, is it the fifth or sixth? The new feature film. Yeah, yeah I think it's at least the fifth. But so yeah. maybe we can just talk a little bit about that case mm-hmm. and what it is that drew you to it and... What that sort of collective, first collective shaming, which is, I think, what happened, and then sort of collective rehabilitation is about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, first of all, I will say it's it's actually really nice to hear you say that. that I'm obsessed your with favorite, it. <laughs> your favorite essay because I feel sometimes I start to feel a little bit like children with these essays, where I feel like there are certain <laughs> essays that get a lot of attention, and then I feel protected with the other essays, and I feel like nobody ever wants to talk about the West Memphis yeah, Three no, I essays. Yeah, no, I want to talk about that one. We're going to talk about that now. <laughs> um, it's like the little child in the corner. We're like, no, you, come out. We want to talk to you. Um, it's So the West Memphis Three are these, uh, um, in the early 90s in Arkansas, three teenage boys were accused and then convicted of murdering three young boys. And um, what happened was the two filmmakers made a documentary about that 
um, their arrest and their trial. I mean, they, the reason that they got in on the scene so quickly is that they thought that they were making a film about uh, essentially a satanic mm. a satanic murder, but then they realized partway through that what they were actually making a film about was three teenage boys who had been wrongly accused and convicted of a crime they didn't commit. I mean, the filmmakers became very convinced that they had been wrongly convicted and made a series of three films about their the duration of their incarceration. They were incarcerated for almost 20 years and their eventual release. And a lot of new evidence was found largely because the first documentary kind of gathered all this public support and support from a lot of wealthy Hollywood people, Peter Jackson and Johnny Depp and Eddie Vedder. And, and so there was a lot of money being thrown at their defense and that was part of what allowed this new evidence to come mm -hmm. to light. So what I, I mean, I mainly look at, and so the final documentary comes it kind of tells the story of what the first documentary set in motion. Um, and what I was interested in, one of the things I was interested in was was the way that the documentaries sort of look at all of these various people who are involved in the situation. So not just the boys who are accused and convicted, but the families of the boys that they were accused of killing. Um, and you see all these kind of multiple competing claims on empathy and all of these to me what were kind of challenges to empathy mm. in fascinating ways so like you see a you know and, and often quite upsetting ways but you see like a the mother of one of the boys who was killed like you, you kind of you can see her in one moment in a state of, of anguish and feel for her loss but then you see her in another moment and and she's kind of performing an anger and you know send you know saying wishing these horrible things on these mm. teenage boys. And, and I was thinking about what happens where, what happened inside of me, I guess, when I was kind of really resenting her, almost resenting her for not being a wholly uncomplicatedly sympathetic mm. figure. Um, and, and, and just thinking about how complicated it is to experience empathy, how, how pain mm. doesn't always make itself known in ways that coax out our sympathy. Sometimes pain makes itself known in ways that totally push us away or make us feel a lot of distaste and, and mm. that was part of what I wanted that tangle was part of what I wanted to get at as well and I think it also does something that sort of interestingly mimics what the book itself does which is it suggests something about what the act of bearing witness might lead to and I wanted to ask you what with with this sort of both confessional and witnessing writing what what you hope for from that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. what's what's the payoff for the kind of risks that you're taking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that film sort of suggests how large a thing that sort of witnessing can be right. because thanks to the film, those three boys are right. free rather than right. not free. Right. In a, I mean, in a way, there's a kind of uh, fantasy fulfillment for every kind of documentary mm. artist yeah. in the story of those films. I think you're absolutely right about that, that in, in a way it's sort of, if, if only it could be such a direct line for the art we make that it's like, oh, I documented this wrong thing and now there are no more Bolivian silver miners ever because my book made $800 and I give it all to them. You know, it's, it's, it isn't, most of the time it can't work like that. And um, my book probably is, I don't know, has it made 800 pounds? Bummer. But I do, I mean, one thing I feel, and I think I'm probably bastardizing a David Foster Wallace quote, which really happens <laughs> all the time in this space. They're on all bookstores everywhere. But, um, you know, about, I guess, on a basic level about how writing can make us feel less alone in mm -hmm. certain states. And so, when, you know, when we talk about the value of confessional writing, I, I, I believe that or I've, you know, felt it myself as a reader of other mm -hmm. people's writing that um, somebody talking about experience can make me relate to my own experience in a different way and, and I and I really I just believe in that as a function of writing um, and then I think in terms of uh, witnessing or documenting and, and particularly as those kind of um, adhere to social justice issues mm. you know I, I think that all kinds of things can um, I think that all kinds of things can can come into motion I think that making I think that raising awareness can lead to individual action towards and, and kind of uh, to become aware of oneself as a citizen in relation to certain kinds of problems I think is is important um, I think and I think that it can it can also yeah, I don't think of essays or books as fully autonomous units so I think that thinking about it as starting a conversation where people aren't just sort of 
feeling like they know a subject better because they've read about it, but maybe want to push back against whatever you said about it or want to complicate your vision of whatever you're presenting. I mean, I think sort of sparking those kinds of conversations, my, my hope is that that can be useful as well. Or some of the works of art that I respect a lot, I feel like that's, that's part of what they do. And, mm. um, and I think AG is a really interesting example, actually, of that because his book, it wasn't like his book had a lot of impact on the sharecroppers he was writing about, and it didn't even have much impact on the America that he was writing about because really nobody ever, nobody read his book when it came out. It wasn't until the 60s that anybody read Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. But I do think his work had a kind of impact on how people thought about writing about suffering and that he became a real model for how that might be some of the work of a writer. And so it had a, a more delayed, but I think a really, still a really important sort of impact. Um, and then you have somebody like Jacob Rees who was mm. writing about poverty in a way that was actually making a difference in like city, you know, civic meetings of his time. So there, there are times when you can sort of trace that impact in a more direct line, but. Yeah, that seems like a really good point to open the conversation out more widely there's a hand already there's two hands but that one was first hi sorry um this is um thanks for the talk i'm before i make a fool of myself with this question um i just wanted to say i, I haven't actually read your book so i'm going to be putting words in your mouth and uh just flailing punches but i liked what you said about this this conflict that you had about you know, not being under any illusions that talking about your guilt when it comes to these these issues about the poverty and you know the Bolivian silver miners and all and all that stuff um, doesn't absolve the situation and doesn't absolve you from responsibility. And I, I agree with that. It brought to, to my mind the difference between the kind of radicalism of, let's say, Virginia Woolf and the radicalism of, of like Doris Lessing. And what happened to Virginia Woolf's radicalism after Nazism came? In? And did we and and during during the Cold War, how, how, it still was relevant. But is there room for guilt? Is guilt um, you know, there's there's a time for guilt all the time, but at what point is guilt less necessary than self hatred or commitment or the idea of really positioning yourself as an agent in this thing that you're describing as a, as maybe a a, a bad agent? Uh, and, and so so my so my question is, yeah, do we? This is this is the kind of times that we're living through that is like really bad, and you know. Occupy and all this stuff in the world is really in a bad place right now. And do you think that there's a difference between whether your book was published in the sort of late 90s and whether it's published today that kind of means that it, you know, I guess I'm trying to attack you for, yeah, for, for, for sort of putting empathy and guilt instead of self-hatred and saying, look, is, is the problem really a lack of empathy and a lack of uh, understanding? Surely uh, all of us feel guilt and, and, and feel bad about the situation. And poor people feel bleed just like rich people and we all but that's not the issue right I mean surely that's not why the world is such a, is such a, such a messed up place it's because of a lack of empathy and so I, I, this isn't really very eloquent but I just there's something here that I I feel like you've probably been accused of on Jezebel before so just yeah <laughs> anyway my therapist is going to have a really wonderful time with your question back in the states um, I um yeah, I mean, well, one one moment of your question that was rising up to me, it's interesting. I feel like the the more salient difference to me wouldn't necessarily be a distinction between guilt and self-hatred so much as guilt and the second thing you said, which was guilt and commitment. Because to me, it's like, part of your question is like, is it, what's the worth of, what's the worth of potentially getting caught just in this endless cyclical digestion of our own I don't know, failings or complicity if that doesn't lead to any sort of right action or any any sort of action that would actually be addressing the conditions we're documenting, which is where commitment, I mean, that's why that word stuck out to me, I guess, is it seems like that would be the role that commitment would be trying to play. And I guess, I mean, do I think that there isn't a problem with empathy? I mean, I guess I would probably disagree with you there. I, I don't think that, I don't think that we're all operating with a sort of, with fully developed and accessible feelings of empathy towards people who are living lives entirely different from our own. And I, like, I, I actually do think that that's part of, um, I think that's part of where the problem lies. And I think that's part of where the solution lies. I think you might be interested in, maybe you've already read this argument, but, um, 
there was a piece published in the New Yorker last year by a psychologist named Paul Bloom uh, called The Baby in the Well, A Case Against Empathy. And it was an exploration of the limits of empathy as a tool, as a sort of rudder for um, public policy decision-making, where essentially his claim was often empathy manifests as attaching to sort of a single narrative or the narrative of, and the example he gives is this baby who was trapped in a well in America and within 48 hours of her being trapped in the well, like her, you know, all of her college had been paid for by well-meaning American citizens who threw their money at her cause. But really, like, meanwhile, you know, children are starving all over the world and they're not getting their college tuitions paid for by well-meaning American citizens. So this idea that maybe this feeling of empathy isn't the entirety of the answer because if we just follow that feeling of empathy, it can, you know, it can lead to investing in the wrong things, the things that don't necessarily matter most, the places where suffering doesn't necessarily reside the most. Um, or it can also kind of lead to the, the feeling itself becoming the only action that is taken. Um, and, and that, I guess, is where it, what the difference might be between guilt and commitment, where guilt can become an end in itself, whereas commitment implies a next step. And I guess to me, like, what I believe in is empathy as, in terms of, like, addressing some of what is, I believe there is a lot that's deeply wrong with the world, but sort of following empathy not as a kind of self-satisfied pat on the back, but following empathy towards uh, kinds of actions that do feel like they would usefully recondition that, the kind of larger and troubled realities that we live in. Um, which probably doesn't wholly satisfy your question, but hopefully speaks to it in some, in some way. Yeah. For me, one of the most striking things is the balance that you bring between the complexity and sophistication of the thinking and actually the accessibility of the writing. And it struck me that there's a very strong parallel between what you do, and not only with literary forms, but with documentary filmmaking. And that's why I was very struck by the West Memphis Three essay. I wonder whether documentary making had been an influence in your writing. I, it has. I mean, I would be lying if I said I, I consider myself extremely well-versed in the documentary tradition, but I do think that the powerful experiences that I've had of watching certain documentary films, Paradise Lost, the West Memphis Three films certainly being among those, is part of what I... It's part of the experience that I want to create in readers. And so in that sense, this sense of kind of encountering a story, so feeling so fully inside of that story when it's presented to you, that that's absolutely something um, that I want to give as an experience to readers. And then I guess the second thing that feels... Um, really resonant about documentary as a form is this idea of multiple perspectives and the kind of traction that can be granted by offering multiple perspectives simultaneously. And, and you know, when I was describing briefly sort of seeing, seeing these teenage boys in prison and feeling for them and then seeing these parents whose, whose, whose children have died and feeling for them and sort of feeling the, the pull and tug between those two, I think that it's, it's not unique to documentary film, but I think it's something documentary film can do really well is sort of contort your gaze one way and then another and, and I, I find that essays can be kind of capacious and contorting in a similar way, so. Thanks very much. Hi, can I ask a question? I guess it's a question about tone and about style, but also about essays, which you mentioned uh, teaching essays a moment ago. One of the things that the book does really interestingly, it seems, is that it either uh, directly alludes to a certain kind of lineage of essayists, and you've talked about James Agee as, uh, as one of those, also, Wolf's essay on, on being ill, um, Janet Malcolm, Sontag, Didion. And one, once you make that kind of list, you're into the kind of writers that you have been compared to routinely recently. They're all writers who seem to do something to speak to the kind of um, disarray or disarticulation of the body that, that your book uh, addresses all also writers whose own style or prose or voice has a certain kind of um, integrity or hardness or polish to it. And I wonder whether you think that the essay now, the essay as, as you practice it now, what, what your attitude to that kind of, um, to that well-formedness might be. Because it seems that some of the essays um, arising out of, you know, magazine commissions or literary journals aspire to that kind of well-roundedness, that kind of containment, but it seems like you're constantly working against that. And I wonder how that kind of works at the level of, of the writing moment itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess what, what I was 
thinking about when you were partway through your question, which maybe the end of your question was speaking to, is the way in which formally I'm most struck by the ways that I think my essays push back against cohesion or wholeness of form or that or that's often a route I find myself taking. So like um, in the there's an essay where I'm invoking this Russian theorist who has these uh, 31, I think, 31 narrative pieces that he feels like every uh, single Russian folktale can be reduced to or comprised of. And, and part of the formal motion of that essay, right, is um, I'm trying to tell the story of that same incident that comes up in the AG piece about getting hit, um, <coughs> trying to use those narrative pieces, those folktale pieces, to tell that story. But the the story demands that they get put in the wrong order and that some of them don't apply and that there are things that happen to me that I don't feel like there is a piece that applies to. And so in that, it's like, it's it's very much almost trying to signal in every way possible, like this isn't a coherent, this isn't, I want, it, I want readers to have a sense of something being a bit chaotic and unresolved. And it's interesting that you brought up the teaching aspect too, because that's one of the main things I find myself saying to students is I actually feel like it's a very early impulse to want to wrap to want to impose cohesion on a on an essay where it doesn't belong or to impose cohesion on experience and I guess what, what I'm talking about in tangible terms is like this really hard thing happens to me and then having the final paragraph that's like here is why and how it's all better now like here's why I mm. you know somebody died who mattered to me but I feel better about it now or it was a growth experience or something like that and and I think that that can be I mean that's more about content than form but I think they come from a similar <laughs> hunger to kind of wrap things up or tie the bow and and I'm very drawn to pushing back against that and I actually think in ways you know I I I do feel like I mean sometimes the extent to which the extent to which like I've gotten compared to Didi and Sontag is almost gotten a bit troubling to me just because I mean they are they have been major influences for me but it's almost like people can't it's like oh like an American woman who writes stuff that seems sort of smart you know what I mean or it's like it's it's like there's a reiterativeness to that but I do think insofar as sometimes I find myself pushing back against especially Didion, who really is like a an influence in the richest and most important sense, not just that I admire her deeply, but that I I find myself wanting to to push back against certain things in her. And one of those is actually the polish and the hardness of her. What can feel hard in her tone, I think, that comes from the intense polish of her syntax or the way that sometimes ideas feel so tightly enclosed in her sentences that I don't feel as much... Um, pulse in them as I sometimes would want to and so I think that that's also part of what drives the impulse sometimes towards disarray or mess or finding formal ways to evoke disarray and mess without evoking mess in the way that's just like the thought work isn't done so it's messy like which is a different kind of mess. I think we're basically done. Leslie will now be signing but you'll join me in just saying thank you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.